Well, good morning. Yeah, I know. Okay. This is going to be really fun if this is how it is. <laughs> Have you guys read Hosea lately? Is that why you didn't say good morning to me? Okay. Well, we're in this together, right? My name is Andrew Clausen, and um, I'm one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community. And um, if you're not aware, if you're new to Christ Community, if you don't know what our pastoral fellow program is, um, the pastoral fellowship is a kind of leadership development pathway for students, um, seminary students coming out of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in conjunction with Christ Community. Um, the church that you're at right now, our downtown campus, is one of four campuses. And really the fellowship is, is just bringing some students right out of seminary into um, a pastoral context where we get to um, grow as pastors. We are pastors um, and yet, at the same time, we're kind of in this transition zone where we're getting out of seminary and then eventually going into a long-term call. So we come here. Um, Gabe was, was a fellow at one time and is now a campus pastor. There's a couple other fellows interspersed throughout the crowd. And um, we come here for two years, and then we get launched into ministry out, uh, outside of these walls. It's really not a bring-in-and-keep-here uh, program um, although Gabe was so good, they kept him. They kept him. Um, but really, they, they, they take us for two years, and we get to run through the life of ministry, and then we get launched out into pastoral ministry outside of Christ Community's walls. And so it's really kind of like a residency program for doctors, where you get field work, and yet you're learning, and then you eventually get to become a real doctor. That's kind of how we are, but we're real pastors, I promise. Um, so that being said, that's kind of my role here at Christ Community. I'm usually tethered. Um, I spend most of my time at the Leewood campus, uh, which if you haven't been there, it's, it's way out south. Um, we live closer to the downtown campus. I don't know why we're not serving here more often, um, but um, it's, it's great to be with you again. Some of you I know I've met before, and um, some of you are new faces, which I'm really thankful you came for Hosea. So um, again, buckle up. Um, it's going to be a long ride. Why don't I start um, just with saying a little bit if you've been with us for a little while, we've been walking through this thing called Open Here, which is this kind of congregation or this church-wide pursuit to form the spiritual habit of daily Bible reading. Okay, it's not about content. It's not about quantity of Bible read. It's about actually forming a habit of reading our Bibles every single day. Now, the way we do that is through kind of this, this plan where we read through the whole Bible in a year, but it's not a typical read through the Bible in a year plan because, again, it's not about content or quantity. It's about actually just forming a habit where every day we sit down and open God's Word and see what it has to say, see how He speaks to us, speaks into our lives, addresses the issues of our sin that need to be dealt with, and then calls us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what we're doing as a church in the year of 2013. And we're just about to make the jump into the New Testament. I know everybody's kind of getting, raise your hand if you've been walking through open here and you're a little tired of the prophets. It's okay, we can be honest here, right? You're a little tired of hearing kind of the same thing over and over again. And really the, the, the theme of the prophets is we just keep doing the same things over and over again, right? And God has to say the same thing to us over and over again. Well, we've been in the prophets now for seven or eight weeks. And um, last week we were in the prophet of Daniel. And this week we're going to move to the prophet of Hosea. So Hosea is a story about adultery, Okay. I'm just going to get that out there right now. This is a hard story to read. This is a hard message to hear. And to be honest with you, this is a hard sermon to preach. And so please, 
please show some mercy on me as I try to convey what I think God is trying to convey to us this morning. With that, why don't I open, excuse me, why don't I open with a word of prayer and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we praise you for, um, for just the grace you have displayed in giving us your word, uh, something we can anchor our lives to, something we can lean on and depend upon as it points us to your Savior, as it points us to yourself, as it points us to your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so thankful for the Bible. Lord, we ask, especially as we read this, this very hard message, that you would soften our hearts to hear what you are saying. Lord, my prayer is not that people would hear, hear my sermon, but Lord, my prayer is that we would all hear your word to us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would, would open our ears to hear, would open our hearts to receive your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Adultery is one of the hardest things in a fallen world to understand. There's almost nothing harder to wrap our minds around than somebody cheating on their spouse. I don't know about you guys, but in my family, in Greer and my family, we have family members who have dealt with the effects of of affairs. We both know the reality of extremely broken marriages, many of which are broken because of adultery. It's this terrible thing that plagues our world. And there's arguably nothing worse that hurts one person or a family or children than an unfaithful spouse. I can't tell you how many people we've gone to their weddings and we never would have guessed seeing them say I do, saying how much they love one another, what they're willing to do. We never would have guessed it would have ended in ruin or misery or the pain that adultery really causes. In a room this size, I would bet almost all of us have been affected to some degree, either directly or indirectly, by adultery. And as I said, it often is one of the hardest things to work through. It's the, it's the thread that unravels the marital fabric in many people's lives. It's one of those things where once it happens, it is so hard to fix it, most people just aren't willing to work through it. It, it gives new meaning to selflessness and sacrifice to actually work back through what tore two people, what tore a husband and a wife apart in the first place. Adultery is a very, very hard thing. What's also hard is it's becoming more common in our culture. It's becoming more common in those around us. Now, I don't know, to be honest with you, if it's actually more common or if it's just publicized more or if we know about it more, but it seems like, it at least seems like it's more common these days that people cheat on their spouses. And our culture, in some ways, is starting to desensitize us to this. In movies, in in books, in TV shows, we see this this cultural numbing towards people who, who sleep around with no recompense or remorse. A show that just came out this spring is titled Mistresses. The title is Mistresses. That has to tell us something about where we're at with this issue. Greer and I were watching um, a show on 2020. We don't normally watch 2020, but this this. Uh, this piece really grabbed us right away. They did a good job. The Hook, 
you know, line and sank us. Um, and we were watching this show about this, this uh, missing person piece where this guy had this perfect life. I mean, his, financially, he was doing really well because his business was booming. He had kind of the American dream of a, of a wife, a beautiful wife, like a gaggle of kids, you know, houses and, and, and cars. And, 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 and I mean, things just look perfect. So he, one day he leaves and goes to a work conference and he never comes back. And they interview his adult kids, his now adult kids, and, and they just talk about the, the, the toll, the emotional toll it took on them to know that their dad just left. He just, he just walked away from this family. You know, usually when somebody, uh, the, the daughter kept saying, when somebody dies, a body is found, which is terrible that any child should have to say that about a parent. But they never found this guy, and it turns out he turned up. One day, a long time later, like a decade later, He'd had an identity crisis. He found new love and pursued that love with all he had. He'd found a new lover. And what was interesting was as Greer and I were watching this show, we're watching this piece, was at the beginning, the show is trying to, to do everything that it, that it probably should do to show us how terrible adultery is in ripping apart this marriage, this family, um, this man's life, all these kids' lives. And yet by the end of the show, there was this, this numbing process, this desensitization towards what is a bad thing. They tried to show us how everybody should live for the thing they desire most. Everybody should just do whatever seems to please them the most. Desensitization of adultery for the sake of idle stroking. And this is kind of where we're at. This is the hardest part of what's going on with adultery in our life. And this is where we find ourselves in the Bible with Hosea today. If you have your Bibles, please open to Hosea. And as you do that, I want to give a little context before we jump into the text. Hosea was a prophet in Israel. So Hosea, we're actually kind of taking a step back in history, or yeah, taking a step back, which has a double meaning, double entendre in that point, um, where last week we were in Daniel, and so Daniel was a prophet to um, Israel while they were in exile, okay? So this was kind of the 6th century, and God's people had already been taken into exile. Well, Hosea is actually before that in the history of redemption, kind of the 8th and the 7th century. And so Hosea is speaking to a group of people who are still in the promised land. He's speaking to a group of people still technically enjoying the blessings of God's providence through this promised land. And yet, Israel was an utter turmoil at this point in the history of redemption. A growing nation around them in the northeast, Assyria, was gaining popularity, was gaining in power, was gaining in military dominance. As the ESV study Bible says, the threat of conquest and exile were the most dreaded fate in biblical times. And as I just said, we already know that eventually these people would be deported to Babylon. So they're scared there was, there was tons and tons of, of problems with their leadership. King after king after king was either assassinated or usurped from the throne. And because of this leadership um, inability and because of this lack of leadership, there was minimal spiritual direction for God's people. And so during this time, there was this uh, prominent Canaanite god named Baal that everybody was worshiping. And Israel had fallen into worship of Baal themselves. Baal was kind of the god of, of fertility. So he was the, the god of bushels and babies. 
He blessed both fertile soil and fertile wombs, or so they thought. And so Israel at this point had started falling into worshiping Baal, just like the surrounding uh, Canaanites, just like the people around them in the culture. And this is where we find ourselves today. This cultural norm had taken root in Israel's life and identity of worshiping this false god named Baal. Now, I'm going to read parts of Hosea, chapters 1 through 3, and I'm also going to summarize some just so we can move through it so I, I don't keep you here till like noon 30 or something like that. But if you will, open your, your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, and then as I said, I'm going to read and summarize. Let me snag some water. Okay, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now let me stop right there. How would you like it if God said to you, I am going to make your life an object lesson so that everybody around knows exactly who I am and how I work? That would be hard. I mean, this sounds like Jesus even to some degree. I'm going to take your life in order to show how everybody Everybody should understand me as God. That would be terribly hard. And what's even harder is we see in verses 3 through 9, or excuse me, 4, four through 9, um, Hosea marries this, this woman, Gomer, and she conceives, and she eventually uh, has three kids, okay? The first one is named Jezreel. The first one is named Jezreel, which has important meaning, but it's less important than the other two. The second two children's names um, are not my people and no mercy. Actually, it's no mercy is the, the second child and not my people is the second child. So she has three kids. Now guess how many of those are Hosea's? Most likely only the first child is Hosea's child. The second two are almost, not definitely, but are most likely not Hosea's children. And you can see that from their names. Now remember, in Israel, or in the Bible especially, names have a different meaning than we understand, right? People don't just pick names because they're trending on Twitter or because they sound good when you write them out on, you know, when you're signing your name or something like that. Names actually help uh, uh, people understand their identity. And so a name is attached to who you are or who you will become. So in this case, when God actually names these kids, no mercy and not my people, He's, he's pronouncing judgment on Hosea, well, really on Gomer, and on Israel at the same time. And be the cultural equivalent of naming your child, I don't love you. Imagine you're, you're, you're bringing this new baby into the world, and you're in um, you know, the delivery room, and um, the, the nurses are cleaning gunk off your new child, right? And, and the nurse looks over at you, and she says to you, oh, he's a beautiful kid. What, what are you going to name him? And instead of, instead of you naming him, what happens in the story is God actually names these sh- children. And God looks at you and he says, you need to name that kid, I don't love you. You need to name that kid, Bastard. That would be really hard. But effectively, that's what he's doing, the cultural equivalent of naming a child unwanted. 
And so he names these children in a way that tells Hosea and Gomer what he's eventually going to do. Pick up with me in chapter 2. It says, well, first in chapter 2, let me preface, it says that chapter 2 starts to look like kind of um, this extended monologue. And really, it, it looks like um, a husband or a wife sitting down on a counselor's couch, and they're just spilling their guts out about an adulterous spouse. They're just, they're crying, and they're, they're reaching for, for, for tissues, and they, they, but they, the pendulum swings from love to hate to I don't understand to I still love this person. That's what the picture looks like. And in this, look with me at verses 4 and 5. It says this. This is God speaking of Israel. And this is God speaking of Gomer at the same time. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Hosea can't understand this infidelity that his wife has walked in. You know, like Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages, I'm pretty sure he left infidelity out of the list. And yet here we see this this lover who has been crossed. We see this lover who who can't understand why his, his, his spouse would do this to him. And yet he swings the pendulum back. He goes back for his bride. Look with me at verses 19 and 20 in chapter 2. Now this is actually God speaking specifically to Israel. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I wonder what the theme of that, those couple verses are. God renews his marriage vows with his bride. God renews his wedding to his people. And it's this picture of what Hosea wants to do with his wife, Gomer. So then as we move to chapter 3, the Lord says to Hosea, look with me at verse 3. Well, as we look at chapter 3, the Lord tells Hosea, go and redeem your wife from slavery. At this point in the story, Hosea has fallen into slavery of some sort and Hosea, Gomer has fallen into slavery of some sort, and Hosea is told to go and to redeem her from that, to purchase her out of slavery. And verse 3 says this, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. God makes this connection between Gomer and his people, between Gomer and Israel and shows how he has come to redeem his unfaithful bride. This text answers two really important questions for us. Who are we, and who is God? Who are we, and who is God? The gospel is kind of this big story, this overarching story, the mega-narrative of the whole Bible that really we're all caught up in. Everybody throughout the, the history of the world has been caught up in this big story, but more concisely, more importantly, the gospel is this good news about who Jesus is and what he has done because of who we are and what we've done. So as we look, the gospel answers these two questions for us. Who are we and who is God? So to answer our first question, who are we? We are Gomer. I'm Gomer. You are Gomer. The Bible consistently portrays us 
as an adulterous bride recklessly running after spiritual lovers. And we have to understand this. This is the consistent teaching of sinfulness in the Bible, that we are like an adulterous bride who runs after spiritual lovers. Hosea uses this metaphor, arguably one of the most powerful metaphors in the entire Bible, to help us understand the reality of our sinful nature. He uses this metaphor of adultery in order to evoke emotions, in order to to kind of give us this heart hurl, kind of this visceral vomit. When we hear the word infidelity, we, we naturally want to say, that's terrible, that's bad. We're not supposed to be desensitized to it. We're supposed to respond to it with, ah, keep me away from that. And that's essentially what's happening here with this metaphor. It's God's trying to show us more than anything else in this passage that we are just like Gomer. We're just like Gomer. We're sinful by nature, but more importantly, we're sinful by choice. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. There's this picture of Gomer pursuing her lovers. It's not as though she just fell into bed with them naked. It's not as though she was just caught in a back alley at the wrong time. She pursued these lovers. The picture here is one of active volition to follow after spiritual lovers. And the hard part is he's trying to liken this to us. Oftentimes, I know for me, you know, when I recognize my own sinfulness, I like to kind of think about the the fact that we're sinful by nature, right? The Bible says that we're kind of born sinful. We're born into this sin nature to some degree because Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned. Our spiritual parents have passed down kind of this, this spiritual heirloom of sinfulness, right? It's passed down from generation to generation, If you don't believe in the sinfulness of children or sinfulness right out of their womb, have kids. Believe me, it is true. Last night, this is funny, this literally happened last night, so I threw it in there. (laughs) Last night, we're sitting sitting around our living room, and we say, you know, Owen, can you go play in your room for a minute? Mommy and Daddy have to have kind of an important conversation. And Owen, no joke, our our three-and-a-half-year-old son says, he goes, he, he says, no which, okay, so that's bad right there, right? He says no. But then he goes, no, that is not my choice. (laughs) Just like that. I choose to turn on the TV and see if there is any kid show on (laughs) pbs.org. If that isn't a picture of a depraved child, I do not know what is. (laughs) Praise God for his redemption. But it is funny when you have kids, you just see yeah, actually, I, I really can believe what the Bible says about being born into sin because, wow, look at my kid. They're terrible. I mean, <laughs> maybe not terrible. That's too strong. But anyways, anyways, this text is really trying to harp on the fact that we're not only sinful by nature, we're sinful by choice. We recklessly run after spiritual lovers. It's not as though we just fall into some kind of idolatry. We actually go after it. That's the picture being painted here. If you look with me at Hosea's children, uh, Hosea's children are named to show that they weren't Hosea's children, right? And he's trying to show this picture of Gomer being uh, adulterous in order 
for his people, Israel, to know that they were adulterous, right? And so what's happening here, really, if you look at Israel's history in the land, their history in the land was one of just constant spiritual wandering, just constantly going after the gods of the surrounding nations. It's one of the reasons why when Israel was supposed to go into the land, they were supposed to essentially move everybody out, right? Either kind of kill them or move them out. Because God knew that they would take on the spiritual lovers of the nations around them. And that's what has happened here with this pagan god, Baal. This pagan god, Baal, was kind of like the Walmart of the day, right? There was one in every single town, right? There was a a temple of Baal in every single town. And when they came into town, everybody was leery. They're like, we don't want to give that guy our business. We don't want to go near him. And yet after a while, people started, you know, the presence of Baal grew. Um, People started going to Baal more often. And after a while, there's this cultural stronghold. And this is the reality uh, that we find ourselves in. Baal was this, this god of fertility. So like, as I said, bushels and babies. And the primary way that you would essentially worship the prophet of Baal, or worship Baal, I should say, is through sleeping with a temple prostitute. So it wasn't like you just get, went and gave him, you know, some fruit, like you see in, in, in certain restaurants you go and you give this little god, this little Buddha or something, some fruit. It wasn't like you went and you made incense alone. No, you actually slept with temple prostitutes. And so what was happening was there was this idol of, of, of sex, essentially, that was being affirmed. But more importantly, Israel wasn't going to Baal just because um, they wanted to displease the Lord. It was because he would bless what? Their work and their family their crops, and their kids. And so there was something else leading them to worship Baal. There was something else moving them to spiritual adultery against Yahweh, against their Lord, against the one who had saved them and redeemed them. Idols aren't usually bad things. Family is not a bad thing. Money isn't necessarily a bad thing. And yet when those things control our heart in such a way that we can't worship the one true God, the way he's created us to, a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes a God thing. Tim Keller says it really well. He defines it this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. This is where Israel was, and this is where we are. This is the picture being painted for us. So what idols rule our hearts? What controls your affections, your decisions? What is ruling on the throne of your heart? With your work, do you, do you live to work, or do you work to live? Are you working for the weekend or are you working on the weekend? With your money, what does your checkbook show you about what is controlling how you use your cash? With your kids, too many illustrations to think of. With your kids, how does controlling your kids' lives tell you about what really rules your heart? Are you more worried about what school they're in as opposed to where they're going to spend eternity? When they have an emotional meltdown in the grocery, you know, the grocery line, um, the aisle to check out, how do you react? And what does that tell you about your heart and where it is 
with idols? In your decision making, how do you, I mean, just how do you make decisions? What controls how you say yes to something and no to something else? Friends, idols, just like in Israel, idols are all around us. They're practically in the, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Anything good can become something ultimate if we just choose to make it so. So what spiritual loves, what spiritual lovers lay close to your heart at night? Friends, we are not the Hosea of this story. We are the Gomer. But the gospel is like that really good friend. I have one of those friends who tells you exactly what you need to know right when you need to know it. They're going to tell you the hard truth. And Jesus in the gospel tells us that we are Gomer and that we deeply need to repent of our idol worship, that we need to diagnose and deny our idols, and we need to return to our first love. The gospel answers this question of who are we with a we are Gomer, but it also answers the question, who is God? Who is God? God is Hosea. If we are Gomer, obviously, in this story, God is Hosea. God, the Bible per, uh, pictures God as the hero par excellence. He's the one who's mighty to save in every way. Jesus came to save and to redeem an adulterous bride, and we need to return to the God who relentlessly, tirelessly pursues an adulterous bride. Look with me at verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. We already read this once, but it's good to read it again. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. What's the theme of that verse? Ouch. I don't know why they have fellows preach these messages. This is hilarious. <laughs> But this is the picture, again, being painted of God as Hosea, the one who, who knows full well what he's getting himself into. Hosea knows that his wife, put yourself in Hosea's shoes. Better, better yet, put yourself in God's shoes. He knows everything we're going to do to him beforehand. He knows perfectly how we're going to betray his love. I've been to a lot of weddings. I've officiated a couple. I've never seen a wedding where one of the two people knows exactly what the other person is going to do long term. Let alone a wedding where one person knows a future infidelity on the part of the other. But that's what's happening here. Is Hosea and God both know what they're getting themselves into perfectly. Why would he do this? Why would God do this? Because he loves us because he can't remove his own love from us. Romans, Paul says it in Romans this way, in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knew what he was getting himself into when he took us as his bride. And that's a beautiful thing. On top of that, his redemption never fails. It never ends. It's inextinguishable. It's inexhaustible. His love never fails. Look with me back again at 3, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and of and an omer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will be to you. At this point in the story, Gomer has fallen into some kind of slavery. It's probably some kind of sexual slavery because that's the overarching theme throughout Hosea here, especially with Gomer. And so she's gotten so far away from her family and her her husband that she's actually sold herself into some kind of bondage. And she needs to be redeemed. So Hosea, God says to Hosea, your wife is in bondage. You need to go buy her out of slavery. You need to go pay this redemption price. And actually this redemption price, at the time, this is actually less than the going rate for most slaves, which shows you her value as a slave has decreased. Her value as a slave is actually lower than it could. I mean, conceptually, how do we even make sense of less than the going rate for a slave. That doesn't seem to make much sense. It shows you how far she had fallen away. She'd run away from her husband, her kids. She'd slept around with multiple different lovers, made babies with them. And God tells Hosea, go and redeem her from that. Again, put yourself in Hosea's shoes. That sounds terrible. How would you deal with the emotional toil that happens in hearing that? Well, again, God is saying this and using this picture, this huge metaphor to show how he redeems his bride, the church, how he redeems his people, Israel or the church. God doesn't redeem. Yeah. We can cry out with the psalmist. Great is his steadfast love toward us. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Friends, in this story, God is Hosea. We're the Gomer and God is Hosea. As much as we want to be Hosea, as much as we usually read our Bibles and see ourselves as we're the one, you know, we're the Jesus with disciples following us along. We're the Hosea with Gomer and we're trying to understand how to get rid of her. We're the David who's killing the Goliath, but we're not the David when he's with Bathsheba. Um, That's not the case. Over and over and over again, the story tells us that we are Gomer. So how do we, if we've diagnosed idols, how do we return to our Lord? How do we return to the God who relentlessly pursues us? You know, we talked about diagnosing idols, which is kind of like this defensive posture, but sometimes the best defense is what? A good offense. It's okay, it's a small room. Nobody wants to talk. A good offense. So what does a good offense really look like in returning to the Lord? And I think it's cultivating intimacy, right? Marital apathy is arguably Satan's Normandy, right? It's kind of the the subversive surprise attack that leads to the war actually being won. And if the picture of God and his people is a marriage, we have to cultivate intimacy with God in a way that helps idols become something we naturally want to stay away from. So what does cultivating intimacy look like? Does the text speak to that? And I think it does. And the way the the text helps us cultivate intimacy with our God is it doesn't tell us something to do. It doesn't say, here's three things on how to cultivate intimacy with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what it does? It tells us of what he has already done through his cross, through his death, through his resurrection. He tries to recapture our heart through this understanding of the gospel that only can help us reorient our heart's desires. 
He saved us knowing exactly how we would disobey him, exactly how we would run from him. And yet, he pursues us until he has us. He paid the price, not the the lowest going rate for a slave. He paid the price of his own life on a cross in order that we might live, in order that we might have true love, our true heart's desire, what we were created to desire in love, the person we're going to spend eternity with. And he was willing to have this act of service where he selflessly self-sacrificed, where he put himself on the cross so that we might live. Friends, though we are not his people, God lovingly makes us his people. Though we don't deserve his compassion, Jesus lavishes his mercy and his grace upon us. Though we run shamelessly towards spiritual whoredom, Jesus relentlessly pursues us until he has his adulterous bride once again. Friends, this is good news. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this message, and Lord, I ask, especially as we let it seep in, I guess, Lord, that you would um, that you would soften us to the truth of what your Bible has said, and Lord, I also ask that you would um, just help us to see ourselves as the gomer in this story. Lord, I know that my heart tries to tell me that I am Hosea, but Lord, I know that your word has told me that you are Hosea, that you are the faithful one who redeems an unfaithful bride. Lord, I ask you to bless us in this time with this understanding of the gospel that helps us see we can't do what you have already done. We can't save ourselves, and that's why we need a rescuer. That's why we need a redeemer. We thank you for marrying us, so to speak, for bringing us into your family and paying the price that we might live with you into eternity. Through Christ, amen. We're going to transition to a time of communion. Now, at Christ Community, we, we hold open communion, which just means if you're not a member here, you are free to take communion. You don't have to be a member here in order to take communion is the better way to phrase it. But we do ask that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that this table is reserved for those who call on his name as Lord and Savior. We would encourage you, though, to think deeply about the reality that each and every single one of us are sinful. Every single one of us. But that we need a Savior because of our sin. Now, when we do communion, I, I'd ask that we come kind of down the center aisle and around, um, and there are uh, tables behind these dividers here that we can um, partake in communion. We often do communion kind of in groups of people, so feel free to come forward with groups. Um, I think those are all the, pretty sure our elements are all gluten-free, just for those of you who that's a problem. So why don't I pray, and then we'll, we'll move into that time. Lord, we know that you, um, that you said for as often as we do this, we remember you. And Lord, we also know that this represents a picture of your gospel where we see um, a time where we can confess, where we have a time to repent of our sin, but then where we can glory and revel in your broken body, your shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this time. Help us to remember your good news 
Amen.